Welcome to Sonic Genome, the music history podcast where I subliminally slip in messages about aliens and the deep state that can only be heard when played in reverse. Just kidding. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. Anyways, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. It's a little more in-depth than our previous ones, but I think the information is super interesting and pertinent because it provides this essential context to music history that is often overlooked. This one's about music mediums and how they influence the industry. Hope you enjoy. The compact disc, more commonly known as the CD, is a digital optical disc data storage format that was co-developed by Philips and Sony to store and play back digital audio recordings. The first commercially available CD player, the Sony CDP-101, was released in October of 1982 in Japan. The format gained worldwide acceptance, perhaps faster than any format before it, even the cassette, which reached ubiquity pretty quick, with more than a million players and 22 million discs being sold in its first two years. That's pretty good, especially considering that some of these first CD players cost as much as $1,000, making them a luxury item at first. In 1988, less than six years after its inception, CD sales eclipsed those of vinyl LPs, which was the dominant music format since the 1900s. Whoa. Vinyl had always held its quality and sturdiness over the cassette, which never overtook vinyl in sales, but the quality of the CDs was as good, if not better than discs, and the introduction of the Discman CD player rivaled the portability of even cassettes. The second coming had finally arrived, and it came in the small, sleek form of a CD. It brought together the best of all formats. The quality of the vinyl, the cheap, compact portability, and ability to copy new music of a cassette, and it seemed like a renaissance for music listeners and artists alike. So why then did the CD have the shortest heyday of all preceding music mediums? It had the unfortunate timing of coming right before the age of the internet, and in many ways, CD's ability to interact with computers and other media players spelled the beginning of the end for physical formats. People were now able to copy music to their computers from CDs and vice versa, which was a step above the convenience of the cassette. With computers becoming more and more popular and consumer-friendly in the 90s, the constant demand for convenience grew with it. People wanted more. Thus, the MP3 player was born. The name MP3 comes from a coding format for digital audio titled MPEG-1 Audio Layer 3. What do you do with that information? I'm not sure, but now you know. It was originally developed in the early 80s by researcher Karl-Heinz Brandenburg. Sorry, Karl-Heinz, if I butchered your name. Also, just a blanket apology if I've mispronounced any names or anything in this cast. I'm a simple guy who makes simple mistakes. Anyways, Carl Heinz's postdoctoral work at the AT&T Bell Labs expanded on pre-existing work that aimed to compress audio into digital code. It perhaps the most controversial decision of the decade, Brandenburg chose Susan Vega's 1987 hit Tom's Diner as a test song to perfect the MP3. Why? While Brandenburg created the official MP3 format, he was not the inventor of the digital audio player. British scientist Kane Kramer is credited with inventing the first digital audio player called the IXI or ICSI in the 1979. It never went to market and he was unable to raise the money to renew his patent, which meant it entered the public domain for everybody to get their grubby little hands on. 
Apple eventually hired him as a consultant, and he is widely recognized as the father of the digital audio player family. It wasn't until 1997 that the MP3 player reached the market when the MP Man F10 was developed by a South Korean company whose name I will not even attempt to say. But two things had to happen for the MP3 to really take off. First, Hango Electronic releases the personal jukebox MP3 player, and second, Sean Parker creates the music sharing website Napster. Napster provided the means to the MP3 player's end. Using the internet, you could use peer-to-peer file sharing to download any song you wanted for free. It was like the iTunes store, except way cooler, completely free, and obviously illegal. Pirating was a small issue before with CDs and cassettes, but Napster ramped it up 10 notches. It flipped the music industry on its head. Before, the industry was able to find ways around and absorb the cost of pirating, but Napster was a new beast entirely. It directly contributed to a $4 billion plummet in music sales and its three-year lifespan. But music was more easily accessible than ever, and consumers were seemingly in the golden age of music listening. MP3s were commonly used by college students and music lovers alike. If CDs were supposed to be the peak of convenience, affordability, quality, and storage, what do we consider MP3s? Something greater, for sure. And as much as it seemed like a blessing from God to music consumers, Napster had created a beast that would come to nearly destroy the music industry entirely. More on that later. The internet changed the way we do everything. We all know that it's easy to say, but the extent to which it has changed human interaction forever perhaps has made it humanity's most profound invention. We're still at the beginning of it, but in the 16-odd years since Facebook has been created, social structures have inverted, governments have been overthrown, and everyday life has evolved drastically. Streaming is no exception to this drastic change. Before the internet, we were constrained by space, size, and distance, which meant music stores only sold the music that they thought would get purchased, which created a true underground scene at the time. But the internet and streaming took all these constraints and vanquished them with the snap of a finger, changing the music landscape drastically. Way back in 1999, when the Y2K bug had everybody gripped in a vice of fear, a peer-to-peer music-sharing website by the name of Napster started gaining traction among American college students who used the online service to share mp3 files amongst one another for free. One of the most notable features of Napster was that it provided a platform for music lovers to not only download albums for free, but also gain access to rare live versions, alternate cuts, and demo versions of their favorite artists. Anything that anybody could get their hands on could be uploaded into Napster and dispersed for everybody to see. Colleges began blocking this website on their networks, but as we all know, these things are merely suggestions when standing in the way of a determined student. While to music lovers and students this was the second coming, it came at a price. Napster presented a host of ethical and legal issues regarding the ownership of the music. The Recording Industry Association of America, Metallica, Dr. Dre, and others filed lawsuits against a popular website in hopes that it would force people to purchase their music via legal avenues. Unfortunately for them, the internet, along with birthing Napster, 
also birthed the yet-to-be-named social phenomenon known as the Streisand Effect, named after Barbara Streisand's attempt to remove a photo of her Malibu estate from the internet, which only led to it gaining an exponential amount of attention than it would have if she had just otherwise remained quiet. So Dr. Dre and Metallica ended up giving Napster its most shining endorsement yet, with their lawsuits being this huge flag saying, hey, free music here. The user base ballooned, peaking at 21.4 million users before it was eventually forced to shut down a little over a year after the lawsuits were filed. But the damage was done and their sales suffered tremendously. Their songs were not being removed from any MP3 players and as such they lost sales permanently. While there were other piracy services such as LimeWire and FrostWire, they were less secure and safe than Napster, and downloading a song meant inviting a host of malware and viruses onto your computer, essentially giving it terminal cancer. It wasn't optimal, but it was all there was, and these sites were still relatively popular. It became obvious that free peer-to-peer -peer music and file sharing threatened the entertainment industry at large. Napster and LimeWire gave the tech industry a lot to chew on. While you could shut down the bigger players like Napster, the nascent internet was a wild west of sorts, and it was becoming clear that it was impossible to completely stamp out piracy. Enter iTunes. It's 2003, Apple Computers just released its first MP3 player, the iPod, along with the iTunes Store, an entirely online music library accessible from Apple products. At $1 a song, iTunes quickly became the go-to place for music, even shutting out free, and I mean that in the literal term because your computer would certainly pay the price, cost of services like Frostfire and LimeWire. A $1 song was a small price to pay relative to the $900 you'd be paying for a new computer. This was revolutionary. For the first time in history, consumers were no longer constrained by the pitfalls of physical media. If an artist was willing to pay a nominal fee to host their music through iTunes, you could download it instantly, no travel required, no stock needed to be kept. In 2005, though, Pandora sent the music industry reeling again. Its interface was reminiscent of iTunes, but more intuitive and accessible to the user, and it had the added feature of recommending new music based on their users' listening habits, making it that much easier to discover new and smaller acts. The rise of streaming was intertwined additionally with the rise of social networks, which provided people a platform to discuss and disperse their favorite music as well as the music they created themselves. MySpace even had a feature where you could have your favorite song playing when a friend went to visit your profile, and MySpace itself was responsible for launching acts like the Arctic Monkeys and Lily Allen around the same time YouTube was doing the same for future megastars Justin Bieber and The Weeknd. Pandora, in a way, marked the beginning of the end of Apple's pay-per-song model and the beginning of the subscription model. While it does have its benefits in that the purchasing of a song on the iTunes store means you own it forever, in theory, but really not because a significant amount of songs are only licensed to those companies for X amount of years or not even at all, but that's for another episode. Users feel that listening to a few ads every once in a while or paying a nominal fee every month is a better deal than $1 a song. In the years following, the modern streaming model as we know it would take over, with services like Spotify, Google Music, and more being thrust into the spotlight. And here we are. It's hard to remember a time where music listening wasn't synonymous with streaming. While 
Music revenues peaked around $22.7 billion in the late 90s. The industry wasn't exactly consumer-friendly at the time, with most new albums costing around $13 on CDs. This meant you had to pick and choose and be more diligent with which albums you were purchasing and which artists you were supporting. Napster changed the game, though, in a way that, honestly, we can't even quantify. Piracy was running rampant, inciting a stark and sudden $4 billion plummet in yearly music revenues directly contributed to Sean Parker's creation. And like we said earlier, Napster was shut down, but the piracy cat was out of the bag, further exacerbated by the internet's increasing ease of access to information. iTunes contributed further to the decline, with websites like YouTube and SoundCloud hopping in on the dog pile too. Music revenues bottomed out at roughly $7 billion in 2014, $15 billion less than its 90s peak, before streaming became the default format of music listening. But as streaming became more and more popular in the 2010s, it actually brought the industry out of its tailspin. Since 2015, the music industry has recorded staggering double-digit growth every year, a trend that looks to be continuing into the 2020s, with 2020 itself marking the highest music revenues since 2006 at an inflation-adjusted $12.2 billion, which is good, but it's still a cool $9 billion away from its 1999 peak. While piracy might have caused irreparable damage to the industry, paid streaming sites might have very well saved the music industry. Going back to the first part of the series, I postulated that medium is connotated by a few things. Affordability, sound quality, and convenience, and that whichever could achieve the best possible combination of the three would ultimately rise to the top eventually. Streaming did just that and more. It's free with ads, it boasts high quality sound, and the only way it could become more convenient is if we could somehow beam it directly to our heads, which might happen, but I, uh, that's not what this podcast is about. Looking back, it's wild to think that people were once forced to choose between the expensive but higher storage 8-track recorder versus vinyls and compact cassettes. It seemed overwhelming and expensive and counterintuitive to the music listening experience, which is about, you know, relaxing. There is no question as to what the optimal medium is now. It is a music renaissance for consumers, and we have websites like Napster and LimeWire to thank for laying down the path in some weird, twisted, roundabout way. But while streaming has evolved at a breakneck pace to appease consumers, it might be at the artist's expense. While it's easier than ever for an artist to gain exposure, it is significantly harder for them to make a living. Streaming services pay, on average, roughly half a cent per listen. With the average cost of a CD being $13 and some change, that means you'd have to listen to every song in a 12-track CD on Spotify roughly 217 times for it to be as profitable as a CD. Before, artists can tour and sell CDs and other merchandise to make a living, but in the age of technology, fans are buying increasingly less and less merch. Consider this next time you go to a concert for your favorite local band. At the end of the day, streaming in the internet has led to a huge increase in artist exposure and blew the music meta wide open. Anyone can make music with GarageBand or some other free platform and upload it to Spotify for a low cost. If a band wants to make a psychedelic Ethiopian jazz fusion album, they can, as they're no longer limited by what's currently popular. 
There is an audience for every niche genre and style, which has led to the revitalization of genres like funk, psychedelia, and folk. While it's unclear as to whether or not streaming has adversely impacted the artist, we know for sure that there has never been a better time to be a music listener. It's exciting to know that we're at a key point in the ever-changing musical landscape, and while it seems like streaming is likely the final evolution in music medium, there's only one constant in the music industry, and it's that nothing ever remains the same. 